So this morning we'll be jumping into 1 Corinthians, a study that I hope will be wrapped up by the end of April. So we're going to settle into this and be digging into this book for quite a while. And I'm very excited to be digging into it together. As you can see from our handout, we're going to cover quite a bit of introductory material this morning. But let me, before we jump into going through the passage and looking at the context of Corinth and kind of orienting ourselves to this study, before we do that, allow me to open our time in prayer and do that this morning. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time to be able to gather, to be able to do so freely, even as we just heard and been reminded of in the service this morning that we know persecution is something that's promised to be headed our way, to be a present reality in the Christian walk, and we just ask that you would help us bear up under that and do so in your strength. And Lord, as we currently experience less than historically normal amounts of persecution. Lord, help us to steward the freedom that we have and the ability to openly gather to study your word, to be sharpened and equipped for the work of ministry. So we ask that you'd be with our time now as we dig into your word. Allow each person here to be receptive and yielded to what your spirit is doing in their hearts through the teaching of your word and through our application of it into our lives. So we ask for your blessing in that this morning, but also in every morning as we get ready to, if you will, as we plan, dive into 1 Corinthians and just unpack all that it has for us today. So we lift this time up to you, Lord. We are in need of you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So how are we to live as lights in a world that wars against the truth of the gospel? How does the rubber of the Christian faith and belief hit the pavement of the Christian life. That what can remain sometimes theoretical knowledge hit the road on actual life situations and challenges. How do we rightly apply general and specific biblical principles to the nitty-gritty details, decisions, and relationships of our lives? Those are the sorts of questions that 1 Corinthians answers. It's a response to a tremendous amount of specific situations in the life of the church in Corinth in the first century. So consequently, as we unpack it, we're going to see lots of specific applications of the truth of God's Word generally. Unfortunately, in 1 Corinthians, these are inspired applications of that truth. So some of them will be vivid illustrations of timeless truths, and some of them will be themselves timeless truths that are tremendously applicable for us today as we process through how does God's Word apply to the specific situations of our life. So this morning, just a little bit of a roadmap about what we're going to be covering. First, we're going to look at the historical context of Corinth, a little bit of the, the context of the church in Corinth. Then we're going to look at the occasion, like what brought about the letter, why was the letter written, and what was the structure of 1 Corinthians. And then Lord willing and time permitting, we will jump into the first part of chapter one. So a lot to cover this morning, but please, please stop me to ask a question if you have a question. Raise a hand, ask a question. Odds are someone else has the same question if you have that question. So ask away and we can talk about it, um, kind of pause and work through that. I have um, make no promise that I'll know the answer, but there's lots of people in here also who are students of God's Word that will be able to work through those things together. So I want to have this time and all of our studies through 1 Corinthians especially just be a time that we can pause and unpack areas where questions come up. So really want to emphasize that and encourage that. So again, pause as we go along. We'll have a couple places where we'll plan to pause and discuss a little bit, but this morning we're going to be moving. So 
Going to do something technological and we'll see if it works. Can you guys see what's on my screen? No. Wait for it. That, uh, that wasn't what it was. All right, there we go. We are going to go to Google Maps and explore Corinth. Before we do that, this is Kalamazoo, so nothing exceptional there. Just a moment. Let me make my pointer bigger. See. Nope. Wrong slider. This is why the pointer needs to be bigger. There we go. All right. How many of you have been to Greece? Yes, one? Only one? What was it like? Tell us a little bit about it. Beautiful? You love the what? Did you get to go to any archaeological sites while you were there? Cool. Anyone else been to Greece? I just want to give an opportunity to hear what that was like. I've not. Oh, you have? I've not been to Greece, but I know someone who lives near it. And when I went and visited them, like, I was like, guys, we should go to Hawaii. And they're like, why would we go to Hawaii when we like, live four hours from Greece? Like, they, it was just kind of like they were blowing off kind of like what we in America, like, oh, Hawaii is like this really fun vacation destination. They're like, oh, no. Yeah, it is definitely beautiful from everything I've heard and pictures I've looked at. So this is Greece on the map, as you can see. Most of you probably would have been able to locate it. But I want to highlight something significant about Corinth specifically, because we often, we read the places and locations in the Bible, and they just kind of, we glaze over when we see them. But if we zoom in right here, this is Corinth. And before we even zoom in on the city, I want to just highlight something that you notice geographically. Lots of water, very, very narrow section of terrain. So to go from kind of up by Athens all the way around this um, peninsula, this would have taken five, six days on a sailing ship. But to cut across this section in Corinth, which is now a canal, could have been done in less than a day and could have been done specifically on what was an ancient road that they made that literally was for the purpose of pulling your boats out of the water and rolling them across this stone pavement. So this road was in operation for hundreds of years and they would be used for, for warships that wanted to take a shortcut to get from one point to another. They could outmaneuver the enemy, but also for merchants that wanted to avoid the dangers of the open sea. If we read Acts, you know of the danger of nautical travel in the first century based on the number of shipwrecks Paul enjoyed. So this was a, a shortcut that they could take, a safer harbor, and Corinth strategically located very near this high traffic area, which meant they received a lot of both merchant traffic, also military traffic, and it was a st strategic location. So it's this across this is five, six miles just to go, go from there. But I want to go over to, so this is modern day Corinth is right here, as you can see by all of the houses and such. Ancient Corinth is about three and a half miles to this direction, Archaea 
Corinthos. And interestingly, this is where the main city was until 1858. There was an earthquake that pretty much demolished the city, and they had to rebuild the city. And they rebuilt the city closer to the coast and away from the original city, which opened up the opportunity for a significant amount of archaeological investigations. Again, before we zoom in on Corinth specifically, I want to highlight one um, other spot to look from. This is an aerial shot. Looking north, you can see ancient Corinth is right here, and then modern-day Corinth is up here. You can even see where that channel goes through. So this kind of puts it in perspective about how much distances would be traveled. From, from ancient Corinth, it'd be maybe an hour walk or so to the coast. Um, the harbor, the main harbor would have been here at that time. But then Corinth also operated a harbor on the other side, um, on the uh, other side of that canal over there. So Corinth was the closest city to both of these access points. So it was the city that received all the traffic, all the trade. And one other thing that was significant about Corinth militarily was what was called the Acro-Corinth, which is this nice big mountain right behind the main city center. Highly defensible position. You can still see the ancient walls. And other feature of this is that there was a spring feeding that, um, feeding that mountain. So if a military got boxed in up there, they could sustain themselves for quite a while. And it was a very strategic place to have held. So that's just kind of a, a zoomed out vision of what we have with Corinth, and then zooming in on ancient Corinth specifically, one thing you can notice even right from here is just how many temples there were. Temp temple of Apollo, Temple of Hermes, Temple of Poseidon, Temple of Venus, Temple, 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 but that's not as cool as looking at it. So this is the Temple of Apollo here, would have likely been standing in Paul's day, as with most of these other temples would have been up at the time of Paul. So you can just, as we're going to be going through the book of 1 Corinthians and all these references to pagan idolatry, pagan practices, sinful immorality, this is what was surrounding the church in Corinth. This is what was surrounding Paul's ministry in Corinth. Again, from ancient Corinth, you can just look up and see that Acro-Corinth and right perched on the edge of there would have been the temple of Epaphrodite, the goddess of love. And what came along with that was temple prostitutes and all of the sinful influence that had on the culture. Not exceptionally different from most first century Greek towns, but just a lot bigger in Corinth. Corinth at this time, some say it was I'll get my numbers straight. Some say it was 200,000. Some say it was 700,000. That's a pretty big range. But even by conservative estimates, that would have been eight times the size of Athens. So we think of Athens as like, oh, that's the big city. No, Corinth is a central location in Greece. One other thing I want to highlight, actually two other things I want to highlight. So as we look at the location of Greece, as we're going to read in Acts 18, Paul stood before the Bema, or the tribunal, and this is the location that archaeologists have identified as the Bema of the Apostle Paul. So this would have been kind of the, the outpost of the Roman official of the day, and this, the remains of this structure would have been where Paul was brought and gave his defense and was basically dismissed as not having broken any Roman laws. And then Sosthenes would have been beaten to a bloody pulp right outside the door with the angry Jewish mob that was disgruntled that Sosthenes couldn't 
uh, get the Roman governor to kick Paul out of town. So this is the Bema of the Apostle Paul, which we'll read about in a moment as we look at Acts 18. And then one other thing that significantly influences the high amount of traffic to Corinth and also the amount of imagery that Paul uses in his letters to the Corinthians, the athletic imagery. Has anyone heard of the Isthmian Games? That is not many. All right, so if you were in this day, if you'd heard of the Olympics, you would have also heard of the Isthmian Games. So Olympics happening once every four years, and then the Isthmian Games happening the year before and the year after. And that would have been, Isthmia is located, sorry for the zooming in and out here, right near this other port. So the Isthmian Games would have taken place three, four hours walk from Corinth. And again, Corinth would have been that main city that everyone would have been staying in for the games. So there would have been a a high amount of traffic from other regions, especially for these games twice a year, or uh, every other year. So that is a flyover of the geography of Corinth. Any questions that are prompted from that? I just want to orient our minds to where Paul was um, and where the church in Corinth was at this time. Hopefully that was helpful. All right, as we jump back in, I have a PowerPoint, but it's mostly just the verses that we're going to be referencing, so it shouldn't be. All right. So before we jump into 1 Corinthians, we're actually going to go to Acts 18. So turn with me to Acts 18. And this is going to be the account of where Paul essentially plants the church in Corinth. Acts chapter 18, we will read verses 1 through 17. All right. So, I'll be reading from the ESV, Acts 18, 1 through 17. They'll be on the slide also. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was accompanied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many, I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, it's going to be important, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. That's that bima that we looked at, the tribunal in Greek word bima, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth 
Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Pretty helpful account as we get ready to jump into 1 Corinthians. First to note in verse 1, after Paul had left Athens, he's accompanied by Aquila and Priscilla who are tent makers. We know that Paul was also a tent maker. And then on the Sabbath, so during the week he's working hard, he's working with his hands, but then on the Sabbath day he's reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue. And notice in verse 4, something that's going to be very significant, especially when we look at the next passage, not this morning's in 1 Corinthians. Verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. His effort was to persuade, this is one of your blanks, Paul employed reasoning and persuasive effort in his evangelism. He was employing persuasive effort. Now, it's Obviously, this is not referring to manipulation or some sort of rhetorical trickery. Paul is going to very clearly denounce that as he talks in 1 Corinthians. But nevertheless, he used persuasive effort. He tried to persuade. This will be very important to understand as we start digging into the opening chapters of the letter to the Corinthians. Notice that Paul was busy. He was occupied with the word, verse 5. And then verse 6. Notice what Paul's innocence flowed from. Verse 6. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. What prompted, what allowed for Paul's innocence? How could he say he was innocent? Paul's innocence flowed from his having attempted to share the gospel. He was not responsible for their rejection of the message. Even though he made efforts to persuade He wasn't responsible for their rejection. And this, of course, has a personal implication for all of us. If we're to be innocent before others, which we all want to be innocent before others, the pathway this verse portrays to that innocence is to genuinely try to reason and persuade someone of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we know that truth and we don't make any effort, then that innocence is not something we can claim. Ezekiel 33, 1 through 9. I do have it. You can turn with me if you'd like, but I would like to read Ezekiel 33, 1 through 9 for just some insights into how to stand innocent before the blood of others. So Ezekiel 33, 1 through 9. Ezekiel writing, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, Someone that can see these things coming. If he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet. He did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them. That person is taken away in his iniquity, 
So it's not like his guilt is removed, but his blood will be, will, I will require at the watchman's head. So you, O son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from this way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you've delivered your soul. I think this is something that is directly being referenced by Paul in verse 6 of Acts 18. Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. As he had persistently made persuasive effort with the Jews in the town, he realizes, I have fulfilled my responsibility to faithfully proclaim the word, and I'm going to go to someone else and faithfully proclaim the word. Another thing that we can see as we looked at Paul's ministry in Acts 18, his, his efforts and his rejection in verse 6, we also see people's response positively in verses 7 through 8. The response of Titius Justus, the response of uh, Crispus, and then the response of many in Corinth, verse 8b. The, um, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And we're going to read the encouragement that there's many more yet to believe shortly. So they believed in the Lord and they got baptized in response to the gospel. That's something that we saw portrayed this morning with two people getting baptized in our church service. That process of believing in the Lord and then making that visible profession, which as you can see, even just in Corinth, the surrounding context would have been one that didn't really favor someone willing to stand up and say, this is what I believe in contrast to that temple and that temple and that temple and that temple and that temple. This is the truth. And then making a public profession of that in baptism. So this is how the church was planted in Corinth. These are the first believers making their stand, making their profession of faith in Christ. And then in verse 9 through 11, again in Acts 18 here, we see the enduring ministry efforts of Paul. First, he receives direct encouragement from the Lord. Look at verses 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. His encouragement he received was to keep on preaching, the reminder that God is with him, and the promise and this is a surprising promise, maybe, that something that we're not given. He was, received a promise from the Lord that he wouldn't be harmed. I imagine that would have put quite the boldness into Paul's proclamational ministry that basically is like he's invincible temporarily. He will not be harmed as he's proclaiming the gospel in Corinth. And then God's promise, I have many in this city who are my people. God refers to people who have not yet heard, people who have not yet responded to the gospel, and he calls them my people. The sovereignty of God in salvation, repeat that, the sovereignty of God in salvation fuels the obedience of Paul in evangelism. This is not something that Paul's going to hear and say, oh, okay, well, God has many people in this city, so if he has many people in this city, then 
I guess he'll take care of that. And I can, I mean, you saw the picture of the beach, right? That's a good place to go chill. No, he sees God's proclamation that there are many in this city that are his people, not as a discouragement to evangelism, but as fuel for that obedience in evangelism. And this same timeless truth motivates our evangelism today. We're not given that in a specific city context, but we do have a similar promise. Although Paul had a literal vision that displayed the actual geography of Christ's promise here, we have this general promise in John 10, 16, where Jesus says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. What a promise from the Lord to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is the promise that fuels that obedience in our evangelism. It is the hope and the confidence that there are people who will indeed respond in faith to the good news of Jesus Christ, which fires and enlivens our zeal to share the good news with the world. And Paul's response to the vision was to stay and teach. That's what he did in response. And then we see in verse 11 that he was there for 1.5 years, a year and a half, teaching the word to the people. This has significance as we read the first letter of Corinth, as we think about just how long he was there in that city. He was teaching them for 18 months. Imagine that. Imagine if we had an apostle here at Calvary that, like, we had him on loan for 18 months, a direct representative of Christ with all the authority of the apostle, of an apostle. You would imagine that, okay, he has to go somewhere else, but a year later, 12 months later, Calvary's probably doing all right. I mean, like, we, we had the apostles' ministry with us for 18 months. Things are probably going just dandy. Well, the letter of 1 Corinthians reveals that that was not the case for Corinth. Paul's absence was rapidly felt by those in Corinth. But before Paul was leaving Corinth, verse 12 through 17 documents a Jewish counterattack. Basically, they align their efforts to get Paul kicked out of Corinth. There was an effort to get him out of there on the part of the Jews. Now, notice where we read the proconsul of Achaia in verse um, 12, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. So Achaia was not just the region of Greece. This was the region of Greece and the surrounding area. This was a large swath. This was a really big deal, this proconsul of Achaia. This is picture not like city governor of Kalamazoo, picture not like governor of Michigan, picture if like Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, and Illinois were all part of one jurisdiction and there's one person leading that whole region, that would be the sort of figure that Paul is standing before for this defense. It's a, it's a big deal. This tribunal mentioned in verse 12, 16, and 17 where he stands before the proconsul. And the response of the Jews, when they're trying to, Paul doesn't even get to make, make his defense. He doesn't even get to say anything. Before he opens his mouth, he's dismissed as this, this isn't a problem legally in Rome. This isn't something, he's not a criminal. And the response of the Jewish leaders is to hurt Sosthenes, one of their own. He was the Jewish leader of the synagogue at the time, and abuse him right outside of the tribunal. And it's a little bit of speculation, so I, I don't want to 
pull on this too much, but if you look at the verse of, end of verse 17, I think this gives a glimpse into a little bit of the dynamic between how the Roman leaders related to the various uh, belief systems there, the Jews, the Christians, the other pagan uh, worship. He says, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Literally right outside the door of his tribunal, a criminal act is happening. Someone's getting beaten, and he just pays no attention to it. So I think that is interesting and highlights, again, something of the cultural context that Paul was in and the Corinthians were in in Corinth. So I have a couple of discussion questions for you guys to just work through briefly at tables just to think through and further digest some of these things. Two questions. How would the duration of time Paul spent in Corinth have influenced his relationship with the church in Corinth, I should say, with the church in Corinth? And then reflecting on Paul's innocence. Paul was innocent because he shared the gospel faithfully. Why is it so important to realize our responsibility is to faithfully share the message, not produce a certain response? So take maybe five minutes, less than that, three or four minutes, talk through those. We'll, we'll come back together, talk a little bit about them, and then roll into a little bit more about the passage. Go. All right, we'll reconvene. What were some of the things you guys discussed at tables about that first question, about how that time that Paul spent in Corinth would have influenced his relationship with the church there? Would it have influenced his relationship with the church there? Anything to add on to why? Yeah. Great example, definitely. What else? Thinking, I was assuming, you know, in a year and a half, other people would be teaching as well. So he would be, you know, he wasn't the only one teaching, so he was probably, you know, helping in that way. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That would have been time that he was training up those that would be shepherding the church after he was gone, definitely. What else? What about the second question? Thoughts on why it's important to realize our responsibility is to faithfully share the message and not produce a certain response. Absolutely. I agree. What else? Yeah, that is huge, and that is exactly what Paul highlights in the start of his letter. We'll hit on that soon. Yes. What else? Other things that you guys talked about? Which is sobering, right? 
because we all want that innocence. We don't want any guilt in this matter. So, absolutely. Anyone else want to share something that either you shared or someone else at your table shared? Any other questions thus far? We just flew over a whole lot of details about the church. And Yes. Um, people who have not yet heard and responded to the gospel. That's, God is referring to those people as my people. So those that he intends to bring into the fellowship of his son, but that are not, not yet there because that's implied. Yeah, good question. What else? Any other questions? All right, we're going to jump in briefly to talking about Paul's correspondence with Corinth, the letters that he wrote back and forth. Question, hypothetically, to start with. If archaeologists found a first-century grocery list written by the Apostle Paul, would this need to be added to our Bibles? No. Why not? That's a harder question, right? Because it's a grocery list. Because it's a grocery list. Okay, maybe that was a too easy of a question. But Paul wrote other letters that we do not have. So what if archaeologists were to find those? A trickier question, right? So I want to talk a little bit about inspiration. What makes Scripture, Scripture? Fundamentally, a text of Scripture is canon, that is, it's, it's part of what God intended to give to his people, because it is inspired by God. The canonicity of a book is solidified the moment, the moment that it is written by the inspired author. No church, no council, or group of people ever get together and decide what books were inspired. Nevertheless, it did take several decades after the last inspired books and letters were written before settled consensus regarding what was truly inspired emerged. The second century church's embrace of the inspired scriptures was merely a recognition of what already was. The church did not somehow make inspired texts authoritative. So just briefly to remind you all of the criteria for recognizing canonicity, and this is adapted from MacArthur Mayhew's Biblical Doctrine. This is three, uh, three words that hopefully help you remember it. Apostolic, or apostle, alignment, and acceptance. First, it was written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle. That's criteria number one for talking about New Testament canon. Two is alignment, doctrinal alignment with existing scripture. Doctrinal alignment with existing scripture. And three, acceptance, universal acceptance by God's people. So if we were to find that grocery list, perhaps it would satisfy those first two Right? It was written by an apostle, if we could somehow confirm that it was written by the Apostle Paul. And it doesn't say anything that disagrees with any other passages of Scripture, so it's technically doctrinally aligned. 
But that third one is very significant. Let me talk about universal acceptance by God's people. And if God's people didn't have it for 2,000 years, then there's no reason to believe that there was universal acceptance by God's people. So when we think about what we have as 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, what we really have is Corinthians B and Corinthians D, as scholars refer to them as. Because, as we'll see from even within these letters, there's references to other letters that Paul wrote between these letters. The first one is in verse 9 of chapter 5 in 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians before 1 Corinthians. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he adds a little bit of clarification because they had kind of took that and twisted it, and he's having to correct the way that they twisted it. So a letter was written before our 1 Corinthians, and in 2 Corinthians 2.4, he says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This reference to this letter, some say it is in reference to 1 Corinthians, in which case we only technically have three Corinthians referenced, but most lean towards this being in reference to a visit that Paul made to the church in Corinth and then a follow-up letter after that visit that was very severe, and then their repentance, and then in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, he's basically explaining the context of that severe letter or sorrowful letter as it's referred to. So, those are some of the letters that Paul wrote to Corinth, and we have, inspired by God, the second and the fourth letters to the Corinthian church. And we will be referring to them as 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So don't worry, I'm not going to be calling this letter 2nd Corinthians all the way through. That would be tremendously confusing. So that's just a little bit about that letter and how it fits into Paul's correspondence. The occasion, what, what caused the need for 1st Corinthians? Paul was responding to specific issues in the church in Corinth. Paul was responding to specific issues in the church in Corinth but this letter was designed for more than Corinth. A quote from Andreas Kostenberger in The Cradle, the Cross, and the Crown. He says, although the church at Corinth was Paul's primary intended recipient, he wanted the letter to be read by many congregations, particularly those in Achaia. He says, further, 1 Corinthians was co-addressed to all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. So although we are looking at specific responses to specific situations in the book of 1 Corinthians, those specific responses and specific situations are Paul's inspired responses and are loaded with timeless applications. Loaded with timeless applications. I want to read through a few of the things, the sorts of things that Paul addresses in this one letter. And I'm asking you as I read these, Think through, do any of these not apply today? Do any of these not have application and implications for my life today? These are the sorts of things he addresses in this letter. How, the, how Christ's saving work confronts our pride. Mankind's desperate need for a savior. How to heal disunity within the body. What true apostleship is. How and why to confront sexual sin within the church. How to love in light of God's lavish mercy how to flee sinful temptation, principles for Christian marriage that honors God, thinking clearly about singleness and deciding to get married, how to rightly calibrate our consciences, 
what sacrificial love looks like in action, how to steer clear of temptation, the priority of worshiping God in everything, God's design for men and women, why communion is important and serious, what are spiritual gifts and how should we think about them, the beautifully functional design of the body of Christ, the permanence of love, the temporary nature of the sign gifts, how the church is supposed to gather to worship the Lord, why Christ's resurrection is important, why we need a resurrection body made for an eternal kingdom. Are those not all applicable today? Are they not all applicable to every church from every day? This is the sort of thing Paul addresses, and he does so with specific situations, which is really helpful for us in understanding, again, how that, how that what we know meets the, the pavement of what we experience in life. So some structure, high level of 1 Corinthians. Um, I actually don't have, oh, I have this on your handouts. Structure of 1 Corinthians, adapted from the cradle across in the crown. There's that introduction in the first nine verses. There's a response to the reports that he's received orally from Chloe's people, and then responses to a letter from the Corinthians is the second half, and then he wraps up the conclusion. And we are not going to get into this passage thoroughly this morning. We will look at the first four verses, three verses. We're not going to look at the first 17 this morning. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians, and we will be looking at three verses. I am still committed to getting done by April. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In this introduction, a couple things to highlight. One, very clearly, Paul is the author. What else do you notice that's interesting about verse 1? Whose name is mentioned there? Sosthenes. Sosthenes. Yes. What else do we know about Sosthenes from Acts 18? Yes, he got mobbed. He was the leader of the Jewish synagogue, leader of the effort presumably the effort to get Paul kicked out of Corinth, and later, evidently, was converted and had to, I'm guessing, flee Corinth with Paul when he was out of Corinth because he's writing with Paul. Remarkable insight into God's work of conversion in this man's life and his now co-laboring with Paul in the work of the gospel. So Paul is the author. He was instrumentally used by God in the planting of the church at Corinth. We looked at that in Acts 18. And then the only other place Sosthenes is mentioned in the Bible is in Acts 18.17, where he was beaten by the Jews for failing to get Paul kicked out of Corinth. Another thing I want to point to in verse 2, something remarkable as you think about the church in Corinth. The sanctified church? Really? We're calling Corinth a sanctified church. The church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. This is the church of God. It's God's church. It's not Paul's church. It's not the Corinthian elders' church. It belongs to God. 
the church of God that is in Corinth. But it's those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified, that is, made holy. Past tense, we typically today refer to sanctification as that ongoing process of being made holy, but here Paul uses it in the past tense to refer to that positional holiness that a believer receives the moment he turns to Christ in repentance and faith. It becomes clear that this church is far from a perfect church, so calling it a sanctified church is curious, but that is how Paul starts this off. That is how Paul addresses them as those called to be saints. Paul is referring to their positional sanctification, to their holiness. All those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for faith, by faith, for salvation, receive his righteousness, that is Christ's righteousness, on their behalf and are therefore fully sanctified in a legal justification sense. Now, of course, growing in practical holiness is then the lifelong process flowing from that regeneration and justification. So we're going to wrap up there. We'll pick up with verses 4 through 17 and maybe all of chapter 1 in two weeks. Um, but I just want to encourage you to kind of maybe read over these, these sections. And I w- would also greatly appreciate if you'd read verses 4 through 17 um, before two weeks from now. And that'll just help us orient and kind of hit the ground running so we can cover maybe a little bit more ground next time. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to break into prayer groups this morning. This is the second Sunday of the month, so we're going to spend some time just praying together in small groups. A few of us are going to slip out during that time to help prepare lunch. Any of you are welcome to stay for lunch. We've got burgers and hot dogs. We're going to be grilling right outside the door, um, so you can't miss us. We'll have plenty of food for everyone to stick around and enjoy, and uh, yeah, thank you all. I'll pray for us, and then we'll break into prayer groups, so... Yeah, if you bring these back, that would save paper, save a tree, so bring your, bring your handouts back. I'll have extra copies just in case, but we'll go through the rest of this, this sheet together next week. Thanks for asking that, Tyler. Uh, let's pray and we'll break into groups. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for your word, and it just has so much for us, so much to think about, to chew on, even just reading the account of you planting the church in, First Corinth, uh, in Acts 18, and you're planting the church in Corinth. It's just a marvelous testimony to your grace and the power of the gospel in working in the lives and hearts of those that were chained to idolatry, that were chained to sexual sin, that were chained to pagan practices that had been present in their culture for centuries, and you rescuing them out of that darkness and causing them to be your sons and your daughters. We thank you for that work that you did in their hearts, and we look forward to worshiping alongside them in eternity. And we also reflect on our own salvation as we think about those that you saved in Corinth and recognize, though different culturally, you did the same thing in our hearts. And when you rescued us from our sin, you placed us into a relationship with Jesus Christ that we are so thankful for. Lord, we also realize that even as we are positionally sanctified, cleansed, washed, righteous saints, we are still very much in process And although we might not be in the same situation as Corinth, there are definitely aspects in our own lives that are yet to be conformed to your word, yet to be conformed to the will of your spirit. So we just ask for his ongoing work in our hearts today as we continue to digest what your word teaches us throughout the day and throughout the week. We lift this time up to you as we continue in prayer. It's in Christ and we pray. Amen.